Good morning, Northbrook. Our text this morning is the 23rd Psalm. So, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm Jake Ledette, one of the pastors here. And again, as always, it's a joy to open up God's word, even to a really familiar psalm this morning and, and see what God might have for us. Uh, speaking of opening up his word, uh, next week we are starting a series uh, just going through Second Timothy. So if you've been around Northbrook for a bit, uh, if you uh, are new to Northbrook, Northbrook, we at Northbrook we love the scriptures. We believe that when we go to the scriptures, we meet the God of the scriptures. And so, typically, our uh, mo is just to kind of uh, go through a book of the Bible. And so, we've done a good bit of that already. Or we're hopping into Second Timothy, and there is purpose and intention, obviously, behind that. So, Second Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul, a pastor of many churches, uh, to a young pastor uh, Timothy about pastoring. Um, and so that you may think, well, hey, I'm not a pastor, but and obviously even at the three pastors here, Dustin and Randy and myself, we do want to hear uh, the words of Second Timothy. Uh, but one of the things, one of the reasons we're going to Second Timothy is because as a church, we want to grow in our shepherding as a church, as we shepherd one another. As we, I mean, obviously Paul is pointing Timothy to Jesus, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, as he looks to care for and tend to the souls uh, of others and. All of us should desire to, to do that. Uh, and as we grow, as God, by his grace, grows us in our ability and desire uh, to point to this chief shepherd, point others to this chief shepherd uh, in our life, then everybody around us will be blessed. Our, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors uh, will be blessed as we grow uh, as a shepherding church. And so when we go to Second Timothy, uh, that's the hope behind that, and we're going to hop into that uh, next week. And so hopefully uh, you're looking forward to that. And so obviously it seems fitting, although honestly I didn't put this much thought into it, that we go to Psalm 23 and consider our shepherd. That's just God's kind of kindness towards us and our, you know, from the series that we've been in uh, to today where we're focusing on Psalm 23 uh, and when we focus on shepherding through Second uh, Timothy. Um, and then before we, we even get to Psalm 23, I was actually, I preached uh, Psalm 23 a few years ago, like uh, in 2020. So it's when we were completely virtual as a church, had just launched and I don't know if you remember COVID and all of that, uh, but uh, all of that was going on. So everything was virtual. I was preaching. And then I, I saw this. I actually can't remember if I said this, but this was in my notes. And so I'm just going to read it for you because I thought it was just interesting. It says, I said, I'm over this. I'm thankful for it, but over it. Speaking of like the virtual everything. And we still have no end in sight. I've had too small a view of the ordinary weekly gathering of God's people on Sunday. 
a place to see friends, exchange handshakes, hugs, and passing conversations, a place where people who have had a rough week can find refuge, a place where people with questions about God can explore answers, a place where anyone can come and hear the word, sing, pray, and participate in what the church has been doing for thousands of years. Um, and so there's a couple things. When I read that paragraph one, I just felt so thankful. Like it was a good reminder, like we get to do this. Um, like this is something we can take for granted, something we can feel entitled to, uh, but it's something that has been withheld from us in our lifetime for uh, a bit, and it's something that we, we get to do. But even with that thankfulness, it does help me also see just the ordinary temptation to, to buy into the, the, the belief that the gathering is not that important, that God and his power is not working and shaping and moving people through the ordinary gathering of his people uh, to stir one another on to love and good deeds. And so uh, it didn't, it, you know, kind of was uh, filled anew with just a thankfulness for this time. And so hopefully uh, you are as well. And so, okay, Psalm 23. So to say Psalm 23 is popular is an understatement. Like, whether you're a Christian or not, you can't avoid Psalm 23. It's in so many movies. It's, it's quoted. It's in so, so many songs. Uh, Psalm 23 is, is just everywhere. And that, that shows us a couple things about Psalm 23. One, it shows us that just as like a piece of literature, just as like a work, uh, there is something that is just um, enjoyable, that just people connect to it. People are inspired by it. People just love it. 23, we could memorize Psalm 23. We could sing Psalm 23. And actually, what God wants for us in Psalm 23 still be really far from our hearts. Uh, that, that, that what God is trying, like the God of the universe that inspired these words is communicating truths to us. He's not just connecting it to us in this, you know, kind of good work of literature kind of way. But he has his purposes uh, for our lives. Um, and again, just the fact that so many non-Christians can, can know it and enjoy it should be a good teller that, oh, even as Christians, we can know it. And actually what God is asking uh, for us and wants for us in it um, is, is maybe perhaps far from us. And, and I think we can buy into this lie. We think this certain works of the Bible, like, oh, that's kind of for the beginners, you know. Like, you know, new Christians need to know Psalm 23 and memorize Psalm 23. And, and there is not one of us. Uh, well, none of the Bible is like that. Uh, but, but Psalm 23 is not for beginners. Um, it is, but it's, it's for uh, all of us that have been following the Lord for many years as well. God has much for us here. And really even in, in verse 1, we, that should be so clear. Like, the Lord is my shepherd. We, we get that. But this, this those four, four little words, I shall not want. Like, like that, and those are those, like when you come to certain parts in the Bible and they're just convicting every time you read them, like you just read it, you're like, whoa, it's just exposing. Like that little, like when we memorize and say Psalm 23 so quaintly, many of us need to be a little more overwhelmed by the, the hammer that that is to our soul. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You've got to be kidding me. I want so many things so often. Well, what in the world is God trying to tell me? What is he trying to tell us by the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. This is a, if anything, this is a statement that is pregnant with the, really the rest of uh, the scriptures. Um, and obviously the author here, David, he's not ignorant to the role of a shepherd. He, he's incredibly uh, aware of the neediness uh, of sheep. And, and he is the king of Israel. And he is saying, 
I am weak and in need. And the Lord is the one who cares and provides for me. He is my shepherd. Just so you think about what a shepherd does. A shepherd leads the sheep. A shepherd knows the sheep. A shepherd cares for the the sheep. Gives, loves, anticipates, provides, withholds, protects, is present with, whether in life or in death. This is what a shepherd does uh, with literal sheep. And this is what the Lord does with us, his sheep, those that are following him. And it's, it, when, when we believe that, when we live in light of that, that's the only way we can kind of get to this, uh, I shall not want. And, and the Hebrew word is a little different than maybe we would read it. It means to lack what one needs. So it's basically, I shall not lack what I need. The, the Lord is my shepherd, so I shall not lack what I need. Psalm 34, 10, same word. The young lions suffer once. And hunger, they do lack what they need. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So I shall not want, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't want or desire things. It more clearly means that because God is our shepherd, we have no lack. There is nothing that is of necessity that he hasn't provided for us. And and I think even in the whole psalm, if you think about it, this is the only action we take. And it's kind of action by inaction. Like we, we take the... He says, I might want otherwise, but when the Lord is my shepherd, he's able to supply my needs, and he is certainly willing to do so. For his heart is full of love, and therefore I shall not want. I shall not lack for temporal things. Does he not feed the ravens and cause the lilies to grow? How then can he leave his children to starve? I shall not want for spiritual things. I know that his grace will be sufficient for me. I may not possess all that I wish for, but I shall not want. Others far wealthier and wiser than I may want, but I shall not. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. It is not, it is not I do not want, but I shall not want. Come what may, if famine should devastate the land or calamity destroy the city, I shall not want. Old age with its feebleness shall not bring me any lack. Even death with its gloom shall not find me destitute." Uh, again, we can hear Spurgeon and feel inspired and encouraged uh, by that perspective. But again, it's so beautiful and so true. But aren't these four little words just some of the hardest ones to actually believe and, and live out? The reality is we believe that fulfilling our wants will actually bring us the, the rest and uh, the hope and the peace that we are so craving. Uh, but there's a progression in this psalm. And through the psalm, we're learning that we have to realize that God is our shepherd. I shall not want. And then that is what leads to, in verse 2, that he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. Okay, let's, let's just do this with me. I hate when people on stage just tell me what to do, but let's try this together for a second. Let's all just take a deep breath and breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Some of you are rebellious and you didn't do it, and that's fine. Uh, but that's these next two verses. They're, like, they're, they're verses that we just exhale into, that, that he makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. In the Hebrew, that still waters is like waters of rest. And then even verse 3, that he restores our soul. Those, these three verses are just rest. And, and this is what God is wanting to lead us into. 
Uh, and, and again, I think with this soul kind of rest, there's a, a physical kind of rest that comes with it. And so that's like even the, the deep breath in and the exhale out is a way of resting in uh, who God is and what he, how he has even made us. So how, how do we live these verses? There's this restful effect, again, just reading them, but, but living them is, is a different story, isn't it? Um, you and I often think, if I just had this, like it's not, oh, these verses bring me rest or God's bring me rest. We think, if I just had this, then I could finally be at rest. And it's so pervasive. Like that thought, that way of life is the air we breathe. I mean, we could talk about it every Sunday and we still struggle with it every week. Uh, that if I just had this thing, if I just had these things, and it changes moment by moment, in this moment I'm wanting to do this and really excited about this, and then I do that, and then it turns out after I do that, there's still something else that I'm wanting and desiring and needing. Uh, it may have been fun for a moment, but it didn't even bring the peace and hope that I was uh, hoping for. We live in a culture of plenty, and we just embrace that culture. That's just, again, it's the air we breathe. There's more and more. uh, One of of my guilty pleasures right now is uh, Costco emails. And so I just just love Costco emails. I just, like, I don't... I don't check a lot of email, actually, to be honest with you. But Costco emails, I'm, I'm checking, and I'm looking. And I'm like, man, what? I need, you know, a good deal on some Stacy chips and a power washer, and my life will be good to go from here on out. Uh, and, and Costco emails give me that. They, they tell me that. They, they tell me that lie so, so often. I don't even remember, know how many emails I get from them. But it's just that kind of thing. That's the culture we live in. And that's one store. For one, and, you know, we don't, we don't even, I don't even get excited hardly about Amazon stuff anymore because we order so much from Amazon. Uh, it's like, oh, yeah, there's another Amazon package. It's probably not for me. Uh, but, um, and, uh, but we just live in that kind of culture. It's the air that we breathe. And that plenty is what we think is going to satisfy us. And, and I could order, I, I didn't order the power washer, I could, uh, I would still, there's nothing wrong with going to Costco, we'll, we, you know, we'll be there a lot. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but I do go to that email for a rest that it cannot provide. Um, and, and we do that so often, it's, again, it's just the, the air that we breathe. Your, your desires and my desires are actually never going to be fully met in this life. They're not in their, in their fullness, even when you get what you most desire, again, we find ourselves yet desiring uh, again. Uh, I went back to uh, this book by uh, John Mark Comer, uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Some of you, I think, have uh, read it. And uh, he, he said this, uh, he, I think he was borrowing this from uh, a really old theologian, but talking about humanity, he said, we have infinite desires that God has made us with those kinds of desires, but we have finite souls and so an infinite desire minus a finite soul equals restlessness. That, that we're trying to fulfill this infinite desire with all these finite things. And so we're just constantly restless uh, and constantly looking for the next thing. Uh, verse 2 is actually, again, a picture of resting with God and his creation. And the reality is resting with God and who he is and being content with what he has provided for us. I mean, many of you know this, brings more rest than anything else in this life. Than really trying to 
consider and dwell upon and enjoy who God is and what he has done for us will bring more rest than any Costco email or anything else in this life. And here's the thing, even if you think about creation, even if you think about the picture, like it's an intentional picture that God's painting here is resting with God in his creation. And that is available to everybody, rich and poor alike. There's only a certain part of the world that even has access to all the things that we want uh, that we think will bring us rest. But everybody has access to this, uh, to God and who he is uh, and his creation. Um, uh, But again, to get here, we must choose to not want. We must embrace a lack in a culture of plenty. Because we possess what is most important about life, which is God himself. Like if God, if God and who he is and what he has done for us and his spirit's presence with us and his moving and working in our life and whatever he's up to in our life is what is most important about us, then we can actually embrace lack in this life. Not, not some false humility or anything like that or acting like we're something we're not, but actually embracing the idea of not wanting and not needing and lacking and, and telling the culture a different story than what that Costco email tells us. Is that I actually don't need any of those things because God has given me all that I need. Some of those things may be helpful, they may be fun, but they're not going to bring rest to my soul. There, there is only one place uh, to find that. Uh, there's a, another kind of enemy to our soul in this way. It's this culture that we live in, uh, but also the inner turmoil that we experience. I was actually reading this psalm to a friend uh, a while back, many, many years ago now, and uh, I was, she was in uh, a season of kind of forced rest, and I was reading this to her, and she was like, Jake, what if I, I don't want to pause? I don't want to lay down. I don't want to sit to me. I just, that's, that's what floods my mind when I sit and rest, and I can't rest. Uh, because I can't face that. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, it's not just going from, you know, purchase to purchase, but it's going from activity to activity because we can't be still with our own thoughts. can't be still with our own mind. Uh, it's so busy. It's so active. And we don't want to face things that have been haunting us for a long time. Um, and and there's, a, there's a deeper soul work that has to be done so that we might even rest. But obviously... If we've experienced this, if we've been that person, uh, if we've been close with those uh, folks that are really struggling with activity, activity, we see that those activities obviously don't bring rest, but they bring more distraction. Uh, they bring more, more of a gap between who we want to be and who, who we're really actually being in our day-to-day life. Is that true of you? Do you need to pause and, and be still? Um, and then I also even think how we, like in those moments where we're not wanting to pause and be still and just wanting to go from activity to activity, doesn't that say something about who we view God to be? Like we don't view God as this Psalm 23 kind of God. We view God as this, like he's out to, like as soon as you stop and, and consider, especially your own sin, he's out to get you. Like you don't want to stop because you feel you're afraid of, of coming to grips with God in those moments because you think he's just going to be out to get you in that moment as opposed to this God that actually loves you, is your good shepherd and tends to you and, and makes you lie down in green pastures and leads you beside still waters and actually went through great depths to die on the cross for those very things that you're afraid of facing. He was not afraid to face them. He faced them on the cross with every bit of life that he had so that you could actually face them. This is what Jesus has done for us. 
Of course there's sin to be convicted of and desire to lay down at God's feet, but, but we're laying those things down at the feet of a good shepherd. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Is there anything you're avoiding that keeps you from resting? Is there sin you're hiding that is keeping you from resting? You get to go to this good shepherd and lay those things down at his feet. Do you see that God wants you to enjoy him? Like That's his desire. He's not out to get you. He's out to get you to enjoy him. Uh, but, but we do have to face those things that we're avoiding um, or else we're not being honest with him or ourselves. My hope is that we would be willing to slow down. Even in ministry, might we be less concerned with doing things for God and more concerned with enjoying him? That there is infinite treasures to be enjoyed in who God is and what he has done for us. Uh, one commentator says it this way about these verses. says, these are streams and rivers where the sheep could drink without being rushed. The refreshing care of the shepherd for his sheep. That's the view that we should have of God in these ways. And then verse 3, he restores my soul. So we acknowledge who the shepherd is. We acknowledge that we truly do and don't. We acknowledge what we truly do and don't need. We lie down and rest. And then he restores our soul. The the progression here kind of helps us see that there's no shortcut. We, We want a shortcut to a restored soul actually being restored. There's no shortcut. Um, We need to lie down and rest. We need to be honest with him, and he restores our soul. I think verses two and three, they just help me picture and help me think of what I think about when I think of like a Sabbath rest. It was something that Jesus did every week of his life, one day a week, every day of Jesus' life. He uh, uh, took a Sabbath. That's what he practiced, and something most of us really struggle with. Uh, This is actually one of the things I'm preaching more from weakness here uh, than strength. This is something that me and our family have tried to do on several different occasions and really struggled to figure out. Even recently, we've just kind of even trying to find 24 hours where we can stop the normal flow of things and set aside time to rest and engage one another and engage the Lord has been really difficult. Um, But but it's it's what we do when we when we Sabbath when we break when we rest. It's Again, lying down in green pastures and being led beside still waters is not every day of our lives. It's not what every day is like. Is what we're going to see in verse 4, too. But it should be a regular part of our life. And it's in those moments. It's one of the moments and one of the ways that God restores our soul is by taking a break in what we're normally doing and engaging God. And what we often do is we're so consumed with stuff and we're so consumed with plenty that that really just takes over all of our rest. Is what more can we fit in here? What more activity can we fit in here? What more stuff can we fit in here? What, what dopamine hit can we get when we play a video game or go to social media and we have no moments in our life, and especially not regular, consistent moments where we say, you know what, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to do any of that this week. I'm not going to do any of that for this period of time in my life, whether it's a one day a week just for a, a little break, but we just stay in that kind of flow and uh, our soul is restless, um, and, and we avoid uh, the, the restoration that, that God brings us 
through this. I love what Jonathan Dotson says. He says, we prefer busy notoriety, overworked importance, and anxious control over complete provision of rest in Christ. I'm going to read that again. It's such a good quote. We prefer busy notoriety. We, we feel good about being busy. We feel justified in it. Overworked importance. We work hard because it makes us feel important. And anxious control. I don't even need to elaborate on that one. We know that one. Uh, over complete provision of rest in Christ. Um, I think even if we think about how hard we work for the things in our life, and one of the things that we give up on is working hard to rest. Because it actually does take hard work to create space in your life to really rest. It, it takes hard work. It takes intentionality. It takes it actually not working and not going well and not figuring it out. And then working hard to try to figure it out uh, again. To, to work hard uh, to rest well is actually a, a really important thing that we all need to grow in. This is actually what a day of rest is about, to get out of the norm and enter into the joy that God would have for us. Uh, the picture that uh, Dan Allender here provides of the Sabbath is, is so helpful. Listen, he says, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter the light. The Sabbath, when, we, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. It is the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Sounds like his is Saturday. I couldn't do that. But uh, Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk. is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. And I would say a couple things about that. I do think there is that, what he's onto is like there is that idea of we, we don't feel entitled to this day. And God is saying he wants this for us. He's saying he wants this rest and joy and pause for us. No, we're not entitled to it. We're not entitled to anything. But we have a God that loves us and wants good for us. And he's, he's encouraged us to pursue and seek uh, this kind of rest. Uh, but sometimes we're like, man, I've got to do more. I've got to be doing all that I need to do. Uh, I think that's one of our struggles. But then again, um, I, I wouldn't say that's the only way. I, think, I wouldn't say it's because we can't bear it, but we don't do the consistent, thoughtful, hard work to take a day out of the week to actually just stop working. Um, and, and, and again, none of this is perfect. When we have young kids, you're like, well, what do you mean Sabbath? Like there's every moment when they're awake, I am just busy. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and that's, that's a season of life. So it takes a different kind of thoughtfulness and intentionality uh, in those seasons. And when kids get older and life gets busier because now you've got more, more people in your house doing more things, uh, it takes a different kind of intentionality. When you're single, it takes a particular kind of intentionality. When you're unemployed, what does it look like to uh, not do, you know, to change up your Sabbath? There's different seasons and different phases of life that take, again, hard work for us to consider what does it look like to take some time to, to heed even the heart of verses 2 and 3, to lie down in green pastures, to be beside still waters, and for our soul to be restored. What does it look like for us to do? There's little moments in our day where we should be doing this. In, a, in a, just a 24-hour period, there's moments in a week where we should be uh, doing this. There's moments in a month and in a year and in our life where we should seek these kinds of rest because this is what God uh, has for us. And so we live a life of rest, um, uh, and rest in physically resting, resting in the Lord, 
uh, and this is a place that we are supposed to walk in, but then also we see that uh, this isn't all that God has for us, and we go on to verse 4. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Again, I just want to acknowledge the, the kind of process, the progression of this uh, psalm. He, we, we recognize the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. We rest. Our souls are restored. And then it's out of that that he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And paths of righteousness simply means the right path. Um, that's, that's all that God is talking about. But sometimes, what, especially as a uh, Christian and people and people that have been in the church for a while, uh, one time some of the things we get mixed up is that it looks like we're on the right path, but our motivation is off and we're actually not on the right path. That's why in this one little verse, he covers all of that. It's, it's the right path, but it's also the right motivation. It's, it's for his name's sake. And here's the thing, when we're not resting, when we're looking even to ministry or church or work or our good deeds to provide rest for our soul, to fill in that gap that we feel like we're off, to, and we don't feel like we're living up to a standard, so we're going to try to do a little better. When that is our goal, we're doing those things for our name's sake. It's only when we're actually resting in who God is and what he's done for us, and we're not needing to fill any gap in our life, that we can actually be freed up to do things for his name's sake. It's, the, the, our motivation uh, is incredibly important. We are either working for things we need and desire, or we're working from all that God has already provided for us. So even if you think about uh, life, as, uh, just use the word like ministry, like all of life is ministry. If you're, if you're a Christian, desire to fill something, or we're doing the, those things from being full in what God has already provided. Uh, provided for us. Just think about, are you, are you working for love or are you working from love? If you're working for love, you've got to figure out how to keep that love. You've got to figure out if you could get more love by how you're doing it. And you've got to figure out what kind of actions you need to sustain in life to keep that kind of love. I've, I've said this before, but sometimes when Ginger like encourages me or pays me a compliment or just says something kind of out of the ordinary, she's always encouraging me, but she's like, just says something that's a little different. I'm like, man, what did I do to get that to happen? Uh, and I need to, and as opposed to, oh, she just loves me, you know? And, and how often do we do that? One, with each other, nobody else. The God of the universe loves me. And, and that gets to fill my soul, and I get to work out of that. Or, or even you think of approval, something we all struggle with. Are we working for approval or from approval? Like, I need this person's approval, and then obviously when you get it, how do you sustain it? How do you keep it? It's all the same stuff. Or, man, God approves of me. He knows me better than any of these jokers, and he approves of me. Like, what in the world? And so I don't need anybody else's approval. I can be freed up to actually, to actually love in a sacrificial way, to serve people in a way that doesn't, doesn't use them. Um, what, what does that look like? Uh, for us. I remember actually, I, I've typically not struggled a lot with like nervousness and stuff when I'm preaching or teaching. Sometimes I do, but, but there was this one moment about 10 years ago uh, where I'd, I'd been preaching a good bit still, even at that time, but I was about to uh, teach in an environment where there was uh, people that had poured a lot into my life and uh, I really admired as preachers and teachers. And, uh, and I was, and, and one of the things that exposed in me. Like, I was unable to gospel my way out of that struggle. 
Like I knew I didn't need their approval. I knew, but it just exposed that this went deeper than I could even navigate myself out of. That there was an approval that I desired that, you know, this is what our body does. Our body tells us things that are, because we know the right answers. We know what to tell ourselves. And, and a lot of times we believe them and praise God for that. But a lot of times we're not believing them and our body's like, dude, you don't believe this at all. Uh, you don't believe this at all in this moment. I remember talking to another uh, buddy who he was, um, it was a long time ago too, and he was talking about preaching and how he would throw up before he would preach, thinking about the people that would listen on the podcast. And then I felt really righteous because I didn't do that. Then I had this experience, and I was like, oh man, I am actually more jacked up than I realize. Um, and so those kinds of moments, they can be cues. They can, they can tell us that oh, I thought I was in this for his namesake and not my own namesake. But then it's a moment where I was, oh, wow, this struggle goes deeper than I even realized. Um, there's an anxiety here. There's a desire for approval, a desire for acceptance that, that goes deeper still. Um, and, and again, even in that, it's, God, I am weak, but you're strong. Um, and we get to embrace all that God has for us, even in that. Again, when we're desperate for people's approval, we kind of flip this verse around. And God, lead me in passive righteousness so that my name will be great. Um, and, and often, again, those are good things, right? The, the things we're asking God to do, they're like good, holy things. Uh, and so it can be confusing, but, but it's really about our name uh, and not his. Um, and I, I do want to say this isn't like an awareness that should keep us from doing things for God but something we realize that we just get to confess along the way. I remember even uh, when I was thinking about planting a church, I've been thinking about planting a church for a really long time and was thinking about it a while back, and I realized, oh, man, I think there's some mixed motives here. I don't think this is all just about what God is doing. And, and that didn't mean I wasn't called to plant a church. It just means, oh, wow, there's sin that, that, that God's working in and out and through me as I go through this process. And so whatever that is that you feel like God's calling you to, whether it's in work, whether it's in life, whether it's in family, and you realize that there's sin there, it doesn't mean, oh, you're not supposed to do that thing. It just means God's actually working on you in the midst of that process. Uh, that's, that's the beauty of our God, that he, he tends to us even as we seek to, to follow him. He doesn't leave us out uh, of what's going on because he love, loves us. And, and once we're, where we're running after sin, we're running after our own desire. We're, we're choosing something that we know is actually has nothing to do with God. It's something that he has actually told us is going to be incredibly destructive for our life. And obviously, we've been in those moments, and we know there's no rest there. It's actually great torment, great trial, great struggle, especially when we're hiding in those things, especially when we're habitually stuck in some of those patterns, and we're stuck there all by ourselves then there's a path that we have, have chosen that is the opposite uh, of what God calls us to. I would just encourage you, if that's you, then just don't, don't hide in that. Don't stay in that. Don't wait in that. Don't be stuck in that because even just the beauty of the gospel is even just turning to God in that. Now here we are. Like that's it. That, that's, that's being led to the path of righteousness. And again, it's not a righteousness of your own. It's a righteousness that Christ earned for you. That's the beauty of the gospel is that, that even though that, that rebellion that we have towards God gets turned into an opportunity to be thankful for God because he gave everything that you could be forgiven from whatever that is. Uh, but I would encourage you, don't, uh, don't tarry, don't wait, turn now, reach out for help. Um, so passive righteousness lead us both beside still waters, and then they also lead us in valleys where death is near. Look at verse 4. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I love Psalm 23 because it's just so honest. You know, life isn't just green pastures and still waters. Again, I like how one commentator put it, Derek Kidner. He says, depth and strength underlie the simplicity of this psalm. Its peace is not escape. Its contentment is not complacency. There is readiness to face deep darkness and imminent attack, and the climax reveals a love which homes toward no material goal but to the Lord himself. Obviously, what we see in verse 4 is that in times of suffering, God is with us, that he is protecting us. He's there. He's with us. Uh, Again, just like any of those other kinds of moments, but in times of suffering, do we run to him? Do we cling to him? Or do we run away from him? He's present. He protects. He leads. And these things, these realities bring great comfort to our soul. More than a shepherd leading sheep, when we place our faith in Christ, whatever happens to him actually happens to us. This is actually how we experience this protecting. This is his, that for Christians, whatever, because we have placed our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. What, what is true of Jesus is true of us. And this is where our protection lies as Christians. Like if what is true of me is the only thing that's true of me, then I am in trouble. But if what is true of Jesus is also true of me, man, what in the world? How did I get that deal? I don't deserve that deal. But again, that's the beauty of the gospel. So that even in suffering, even in struggle, I can realize, man, what is true of Jesus right now is even true of me. That I ultimately, in every way, I will be. says it this way. And you who were dead in your trespass that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus' triumph is now our triumph. And this leads to uh, verse 5, that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You see, actually, there's a shift here. Uh, God goes from our shepherd to our host. And again, the progression in the psalm that gives the impression that we're on this journey, and the journey holds uh, rest in the form of green pastures and still waters, yet it also takes us through suffering and trials and valleys, and finally we end up at a table prepared by none other than the great shepherd. Like, which of us is worthy? Shouldn't we be preparing the meal? Shouldn't we be doing the dishes? Shouldn't we be getting everything ready for him? But he has gotten everything ready for us. It brings to mind just that picture uh, of Harry Potter at the first Hogwarts uh, feast when he's lived a life of being deprived, and now he is feasting. And uh, just like I just remember that, that his eyes in that moment, he's just overwhelmed with all that is before him. Like in a, in a much more uh, real and not prepared by house elves kind of way, uh, like God is going to provide a, a feast that we cannot even imagine, that none of us have worked for, that not, and it will, even a life of plenty will look like we've been deprived when we realize what God has in store for us. He, he's our shepherd, but he's also our host. He tends and cares perfectly. 
this, this verse 5 is a picture uh, of God's victory in our life. The enemies you're facing right now from without and from within. Whichever ones you're more familiar right now. We all have seasons where we feel like there's all kinds of things outside of us that are our enemies. And we have seasons where it feels like, man, our biggest enemies are actually within us. Verse 5 is a picture that those enemies will not have the final word in your life or my life. But that God gets the final word. And it's a word of victory for those that place their faith in him. This God lavishes more grace on you. He anoints your head with oil, consecrating you for himself. He he sets you apart. And because of this, we can rest assured that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We all soon will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I think that's something that the scriptures encourage us to to look at that day and be uh, concerned with that day and actually make decisions today based on that day. But I think there's also something that gets tripped up in our minds, especially the minds of believers, as we think, oh, that's the day that God's actually going to start being good to me. That's the day wherein his goodness will actually be real in my life. And even if you think about that picture of goodness and mercy following you all the days of your life, that's what the psalmist is saying here. What do you feel like? What are you dragging around in your life? If someone were to say, oh, I see what's following you around, and what would they say? Would they say that's goodness and mercy? Would they say that's fear? Would they say that's anxiety? Would they say that's shame? What do you feel like is most present in your life? What are, you, what are you dragging around with you all the days of your mercy will follow us all the days of our life? This is already true. This is already true of us. And what we do is we, we trade out that goodness and mercy for these other things that just feel more present and more real in our life. The shame from things we're struggling with. The shame from things that have happened to us. The guilt over sin. The fear of this reality that's present in our life that we, don't, we want nothing to do with. And so we live out of fear and anxiety instead of in that same struggle. Oh, man, there's goodness and mercy abounding in my life. This is what Christ has done for us at no small cost to himself. So, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to acknowledge the goodness and mercy that follows us all of our days. Our God doesn't just do good things for us, but he is actually that goodness. He's the one leading us. He's the one before us, behind us, below us. He's the one that hems us in. And so because of Psalm 23, we get to be a people that enjoy him together and proclaim the beauty of Jesus to any and all that would listen. Let me pray for us in that way. Lord Jesus, the, the beauty in this psalm is overwhelming. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a beauty that I desire more of in my life, the truth, the reality of it. Spirit, I pray for your deeper work in my life that I would know and trust and believe all the more deeply that Jesus is my good shepherd, so I shall not want. Spirit, that you would help me rest. Would you help me acknowledge the green pastures and still waters that you are leading me to, that my soul might be restored. Would you help us believe that? And as we seek to to glorify you and and work for you and, and the Great Commission and just to live out the things you've called us to, 
Spirit, would you convict the many ways we do that even for our own name's sake, that we might lay that down and be about you and you alone. And we acknowledge even now, many of us are going through valleys. Many of us feel that twinge of death. And real life, uh, life that's ended, death of relationships, death of desires, we feel that death. And so would we realize and cling to the fact that even in those moments, Jesus, you are ours and we are yours. You are in us and we are in you. We are united to you. None of those things are foreign to you. And even in that, you protect us, you lead us, you guide us. And we look forward to that day when death will be no more, be no more mourning or weeping, We will be at a table prepared by you. Who are we that you would be so mindful of us, but yet you are more mindful than we can even know. And as we look forward to that day, Spirit, would you help us realize that it doesn't start then, but it starts now. It's already started. That goodness and mercy follow us even today. I pray in Christ's name.